Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello, welcome to the Balance Podcast. Happy New Year. It's good to be back. I hope you're doing okay in these Frankly, bizarre times. If you're like me, you are also homeschooling. So I've popped upstairs to record this while giving my five-year-old an assignment. Bad parenting. What I'm confessing to there is being neglectful. <laughs> Better keep this intro brief. Uh, but yeah, these are these are obviously trying times. Hope everything's going all right. The start of 2021. If you're trying Veganuary, I wish you well there. We, I would say, my wife is vegetarian. I would say we eat a lot less meat than we used to. If you wanted, <laughs> giving you advice, you don't need it. If you are trying veganuary, uh, someone we use a lot are the Bosch, the Bosch boys, and I would recommend their books if you if you fancy giving it a go. Or even if you're not going doing veganuary, you perhaps you're eating less meat than than you were. I would say the Bosch boys are brilliant it's not i'm not being paid by the bush boys to say this uh, they're genuinely their books have been terrific as i eat less meat than i used to I, I would be lying to you if i said i was even close to being vegan i couldn't i could i could, guys we know each other well enough by now more than 100 episodes in i'll always tell you the truth uh, but I certainly eat less meat than, than I used to. Anyway, if you are doing Veganuary, I wish you all the luck in the world. We thought we would start the new year with a smile. And so we've booked uh, one of the most naturally funny acts on the comedy circuit. Lloyd Griffith, hugely talented comedian and presenter and writer. Uh, you would recognise Lloyd from multiple TV appearances uh, he was on Jonathan Ross's Comedy Club. I was the warm-up on that. We talk about that and what a role that had on the mental health of comedians, what it meant to the circuit. Lloyd is very open, talks about anxiety, what he does uh, to help his mental health, what life is really like on tour. Because obviously on paper, or certainly the way life on the road has been portrayed on screen, you would think it's pretty glamorous the reality as he says is driving in his volvo uh he, lloyd is on really candid form here talking about comedy but as i say also his uh, his his mental health um i would strongly recommend seeing lloyd on tour obviously we don't know when those tour dates will be given what is going on right now but you can get his tour details 
at Lloyd's official website, lloydgriffith.com. He will be on tour as soon as is humanly possible. We've hyperlinked his website on the episode. Follow him on Twitter at Lloyd Griffith. Lloyd comes across on this episode exactly how he is. Very likeable, naturally funny, uh, and a real pleasure to talk with. So without further ado, the perfect way to kick off 2021 with one of the funniest people I know. Here he is, the wonderful Lloyd Griffith. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, First question. This is such a this is such a fan question. As one of the most naturally funny uh, comedians on the circuit, oh, God. how yeah, strapping for this uh, big guy. Where, where, how young were you when you realised you were naturally funny? What happened there? Uh, I mean, as I've realised throughout my career, I've realised that I am probably more naturally funny than scripted funny, and that's 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 always. Um, been just something I've had to kind of um, accept. But I've always been like the class clown, like the idiot at school. Or always was, always was. And I just would do anything to make people laugh. I would just do anything to make people laugh. My family are naturally funny, like my mum's naturally funny, my aunties are naturally funny. And so it was always just a thing that I was just the little tubby little fat kid at school who would do anything do you know what I mean to try and make you laugh I, I would I remember I used, to, I used to use this thing at school where I used to I used to go hi guys you okay and then I'd just like dive across them onto like the concrete just to get laugh. <laughs> often like ripping trousers like I, I, I really hurt my elbow for like six months but it got a laugh so I was like well that, that was worth it wasn't it so I just always been just an idiot and then as as my career, well, as it started to be a career, it was like, right, I need to hone how this idiot actually says funny stuff and just doesn't dive across a stage for 20 minutes in the hope that he might get a laugh for for, for, for one second. So, yeah, it's a, it's a weird one. And there's, I think there are, conversely, there's there's other people that I see on stage that are very scripted funny, but naturally when they get off stage going, Crikey, how did you make people laugh? Because you're not funny at all. And I'm not slagging people off, and people will absolutely admit that. You know, there are people that are just scripted funny and then come off stage and they just have, there's no natural funny bones about them. But they're amazing at essentially doing scripted stuff. Well, I think that, maybe I shouldn't name the guy, but I, th- I, I think he would admit this himself. I think someone like R- Rowan Atkinson, he's oh, yeah. never, never going to be the kind of guy that's pinging zingers at dinner parties and what have yeah. I think he's quite a serious... Yeah, guy. But then, obviously, once you put a script in front of him, you know, one of the a, a, a bona fide icon of of comedy is it is it a curse being naturally funny? You, you know what I mean by that? Where, where you yeah. think, I if I'm naturally funny, then maybe I don't have to work as hard at the writing, and that, and then you've got and then you've really got to make yourself work. Yeah, hard. it's interesting. Like I don't, I don't really think I've seen Rowan Atkinson off off camera. You know, doing other stuff yeah. than the, the Mr. Bean. Um, and then I saw, I can't, yeah, I, I, does he do anything other than Mr. Bean? He did a play, didn't he, a few years back? Which yeah, he was, he was Fagin. They brought Oliver back and he was... I even, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Ron Atkinson's. So I, I yeah. said, when I said that earlier, I mean, I, that wasn't a criticism. But there's something he said about when he played Fagin. Uh, he said, the, the hard thing about being in a, a play or a musical that's the same every every night, he says... You've got to reinvent the wheel each night, having invented a perfectly good wheel the night before. 
Spot on, isn't it? Yeah. I am um, on. I, I Mr. Bean again. I used to watch it with my godfather. My godfather used to have all the Mr. Bean videos, and we watch him. And it was I just wet myself. That and Desmond's growing up was like the two things I was just kind of obsessed with. And then I remember the, the other day, me and my mum watching like the usual Christmas fodder that you get on TV. And there was one of the um, like kitchen TV moments where it was TV chefs and disasters and stuff like that. And one of them, I can't remember the name of the chef, it's really bad, but um, Rowan Atkinson came on the show to do a, it was a, like a daytime cooking show and he came on as Mr. Bing. And he didn't tell anyone what he was going to do. And some chef had just made sort of like a really nice bit of fish. And Mr. Bean came on in his, and then like, you know, went to taste it, taste it, it was like, uh, uh, and then like being all kind of like, and then just like, just <laughs> poking on it. And I was, I was just transported to me being a kid at my godfather's house, just absolutely wetting myself. I was just on the sofa in the other room, just be like, it's still so funny because it's clowning at its absolute finest. And, you know, that's what I, I was, you know, I am a clown. I'll do anything to try and make people laugh. I then went on a clown course. I went on Dr. Brown's clown course. You, are you joking? No. And I wasn't joking that, that those few days as well either. He absolutely hated me. And it was, it was a mutual hate. That was one of the, and I know it's worked really well for certain people, but, you know, as a comedian, I've decided, I've, I've, I've kind of made a decision to try as many things as possible to try and find something that that clicks and i know that you know like john kearns had been on certain clown courses and um matthew simons uh matthew simonson is it no uh daniel simonson sorry daniel simonson uh, you know had been on various like clowning courses and spencer jones had been on you know so i was like okay and like you know, i wanted to go out to paris and do the um that the ultimate clown course with um what's his name julia is it julia and daniel daniel said that was rough Really, yeah. I went on the the three day clown course with Doctor Brown at Soho Theatre, and it was honestly one of the worst three days of my life. Um, where this guy just rips you apart, just absolutely rips you apart. It's like I don't need to try and do any prologue or any, any monologue, nothing that you've rehearsed. I just want you to be naturally funny, and it was so difficult. And um, it, it, I, I hated it. We went had to like dress up. I had to dress up in a dress. It was like 13 to 15 of us on this course. And we had to dress up in ridiculous outfits. I then had to dress up in a dress and we had to like run around Soho in like June, just running around, like being funny. In so what's the, what's the idea to knock down your inhibitions? I think it is basically to strip you of any premeditated comedy that you already have and get you back to ultimately the, you know, the tiny branch that, made you funny at the start and so we were running around soho like just doing stupid exercises i remember we were in soho square and there were scaffolders working there was builders working doing crossrail and then i'm there in a dress feeling very out of my comfort zone do you know what i mean because it wasn't on my terms anything you know if it's on my terms i'm usually fine with it but on that situation it wasn't and we're doing exercises trying to make people laugh just from just ourselves laugh just from us laughing and stuff and I turned, as we were running back, I turned my ankle over on the pavement just by Dean Street Townhouse. I remember it very well. I was like, and I remember being like, oh, that doesn't feel great oh, in a dress. And I was like, ah, oh, Dr. Brown, I think I've got to go back. He's like, you're fine. I was like, I'm not fine, mate. He's like, fine, you go back. We'll go ahead. And then they started going off dancing around Soho. I then had to walk back from Dean Street Townhouse to Soho Theatre, which is not a long walk in a dress with my hairy shoulders coming out the top 
and just in, I remember wearing these um, Asics Onitsuka Tiger trainers, which were very colourful as they were anyway, and just like hobbling back, being like, and feeling a little bit sick. Cause I was like, this doesn't feel great. And then for the rest of the day, he was like really angry. Me like, he was like, you only did that so you can get out of like running around Soho. I was like, <clears throat> I don't think I was, mate. Like it, it really hurt. It really, really hurt. Um, the next day I came um, onto the set and my ankle was black and blue. Like it was literally, I was like, oh, just, and I was like, just want to show you that. He's like, all right, so you did hurt it. I was like, yeah, I did hurt it, you prick. Um, I just really didn't get on with him. And I, just the way that I thought he was a bit creepy with certain people, which I didn't, well, I didn't feel comfortable about. Um, but ultimately, it might have worked for, for certain people. But on that course, I haven't seen anyone do amazingly well out, out of the back of it um i think eel elf lions was the only person i know had done that course not on the same time as me but had gone on to you know be perry nominated and Shu goldsmith was talking about it on his comedians comedians podcast and i think he said he cried because it was so hard milo mccabe also did it and said it's like one of the most difficult things he's ever done but milo obviously has gone into more of a clowning career it was honestly for me one of the worst experiences of my life and something that when i mentioned it to rob beckett he 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 has never let me let let it down, and always remember. He went on that clown course to try and find if you're funny or not, and then broke your ankle. I was like, yeah, I remember, I remember that. Like, really. <laughs> but I just think it's, it's it's interesting. Sorry, just just how people try and find out where they're naturally funny. You know, where almost like their their strong point is, and you know, seeing someone like John Kearns develop into a clown was just amazing to see. I mean, I, John and I. And Pat, he's, he, he had a, obviously him and um, uh, Pat Cahill did a little duo together at the start. I remember watching them at the very start. We all died on our backsides. And then seeing John and Pat go off and do their, you know, respective clowning kind of like prep and then come back and just be these two incredible characters was just amazing. But for me, I was like, I don't think I am a clown in that sense of the word. I need to be still Lloyd, the working class lad from Grimsby. That's not my title. Yeah. <laughs> You've mentioned quite a few different comedians there, and I, and I think one thing that surprised me about comedy is, the, is this sense of community, and I think listeners would be surprised at that. I think comedy probably has a reputation where you imagine everyone being quite selfish and doing their own thing, and perhaps uh, not being so friendly, but I mean, speaking for myself, and I think you, you as well, you make the, the best friends that you'll ever make on the comedy circuit. Oh yeah, 100%. And it's like anything, it's like any any work situation... You know, you can't be friends with everyone at work because it's, it's, that'd be mental. Um, and also you have like little pockets of people that you become friends with and and from different year groups as well, crucially. You know, it's like school, really. You know, it was always a bit weird if you were friends with someone like three or four years below you or, you know, four or five years above you. But in comedy, it's, it's quite nice because you do have little pockets that you start out with. So, you know, I started out with, with Rob Beckett, really, and a, a lot of others, you know what I mean? A, a lot of others, Kishore Naya, Luke Benson, just people that some have gone on to do it and make a career out of it, some, you know, haven't. Um, and so, yeah, so Rob, Rob was someone that I kind of, like, remember starting out with at the same time, and we kind of, you know, we are, like, best mates now, and, you know, sang at his wedding and spent time with him before, you know, when it was allowed back in the day and his family, and, you know, it just got really, you know, it, it was just that, that was just you, you become a network i remember me and rob just calling each other the whole time and obviously he kind of went on a bit of a cataclysmic rise pretty early doors he won a load of competitions he was just like hey, this perfect five and ten minute set that was just we just smash competitions and everyone would be like oh my god this guy he's like a, a young mickey flanagan 
and then you know you do form friendships al- along the way and i've been really lucky in i've got like a small group of various people that i'm friends with from different kind of almost like pockets of comedy so yeah um yeah it's it, it is really it can be really really supportive and especially especially during lockdown i've got a little group of um, comedians that play poker so a little, little whatsapp group and we play it once a week it's ridiculous but for, for, for you know, because we don't have a job and there's no meetings on Zoom. You know, there are no gigs. So actually, this has been a nice little kind of like lifeline, really. So yeah, the, the, it's it's really, really it can be really, really supportive. Ultimately, you know, conversely, that there there are bell ends as well. <laughs> to, will you have to beep that out or will that stay in? You stay in. I, I think bell ends is absolutely fine. Okay. Uh, it's just your you know your opinion that there are bell ends. That's yeah, of course. No one can argue with that. Um, now, you're, you're going on another tour. When is... Oh, God. Now, talk us through this. What What do you think is likely? Well, um, the tour... The, the tour started last February. Yeah. The tour started last February. So I was on tour with Jack Whitehall for three months up until January uh, 2020. And then I basically then had a month off to kind of like um perfect my tour that I'd been writing for that for six months before and then went on tour on my own in February last year and we then had to halt it after a month because have you heard of the uh COVID-19 pandemic what you, oh, I'm glad you sat down after this have a little search it's not good um I then had to stop because of that um we then rescheduled to end of last year end of this year sorry we then were like oh do you know what we'll just I think February is fine. And so it was supposed to start again on the 8th of February. I am not sure if that is going to happen because of the new strain and our government's inability to roll out a vaccine that they've been talking about for the last year, but haven't, Oh, we haven't got enough vials. I'd have thought about that before. Like, <laughs> a little fat black. From so I, I think realistically, you know, March, April, May is when it kind of goes back on, on, on and then it, it, it's probably going to go into September, October now, which I'm more than happy to do because I absolutely love doing the show. Um, and there's a thing like the, the, the show is about me wanting to sing the national anthem at, at Wembley this year during the Euros. Well, it was about me wanting to sing the national anthem this, this year, but it's actually now next year. So, you know, it's, it's hopefully happening March, April, May, June. Like basically whenever, and I think that once vaccines have been rolled out, people will just want to be out and about, even if it's socially distanced, of course. Now you, we've talked about the sense of community, and that you know that's not just true in comedy. I think whatever whatever hobby or passion you pursue, you're gonna you're gonna find those like minded people. That's a lovely positive thing. Now, life on tour is that. I mean, that can be tricky, can't it? Yeah, especially. If you're at kind of the level where that I'm at, where by you're not making millions, you're not making hundreds of thousands. Um, you know, it's it, when you're touring. You know, you're, you, it's anything between a hundred and six hundred people a night. So you know, you you, you you're, uh, you're earning all right, but it, over the course of the year, it balances itself out. So I don't have a tour manager, and I you know will have support every now and then. Occasionally, it is just well, I say occasionally, more often than not, it's just me. In my Volvo V40 D4 R Design Auto looks, um, <laughs> hashtag uh, ad. It's not an ad. It used, they used to be, and then um, again, yeah, the pandemic. Um, <laughs> I, just, I just get free Volvos. Seriously? Yeah. Lloydie. 
I used to get free. No, I, it was I. You know, it was a partnership with Volvo, and it was great. Um, but then uh, that has stopped. And, I, and then I tell you what, if if they it works, I went out and bought a Volvo during the global pandemic. <laughs> Asked that. Well, do you know, I did enjoy it, so I, I might as well get and buy one. So ultimately, it is me driving. On, on my own, do you know what I mean, around, around around the country. And I have certain support acts, and I use um, usually local support acts or support acts I know that are local within the region. And uh, they're usually, I, I only use working class comedians now. That's my thing. Like is, this working, truth? is this true? Yeah. So on this last tour, like, um, I had like uh, Lauren Patterson, Matt Bragg, Luke Onorati, William Stone. Um, and my thing is, I just like, you know, being a working class lad and it's just, I just quite like to not give opportunities. I mean, these guys are still gigging. They're still fucking brilliant, but like, you know, I, it's, it's giving up, you know, I just like, I like the whole to, to, to be able to support working class and if we can, working class, I think needs more of a voice in TV. Um, I think it's, it's, yeah, but anyway, I've gone off on another thing. But yeah, what I'm saying is it's usually me in a Volvo up and down the country, sometimes staying at hotels, sometimes coming back to my mum who lives in Grimsby or being back in London. But yeah, and and it's so different to having been on tour with um, Jack Whitehall where it's there's a crew of like 40 people traveling every single day um, where there's a little bit of community on there. And it was so quite weird going from having done three months of tour buses and, you know, I'd say relatively rock and roll tour to then just jumping in the Volvo with my three bags and just going and doing jokes up and down the country. Very different. Now, the the working class thing, the reason why I pulled that face, I'm regular listeners right now are rolling their eyes because it's something that I... We'd like to talk about the, uh, the the drop of a hat, drop of a flat cap, actually, in, in my <laughs> in my case. But someone from, as someone who's from a, a you know very proud, I mean, it defi- I know you're the same. It defines who we are, doesn't it? That that, that coming from a working class background, in our experience, it, it will it will never it will never leave us. But I, I'm I'm with you. What what can be done to 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 better help any performer for, uh, from a working class background? I think, well, for, for me, I just wasn't aware that a working class person could go on and do stuff that I'm now doing. Um, Lee Mack touched on it in his autobiography where he just thought that... Great people, book. It's a great book, yeah. Great I book. Actually, I was really... I did some filming with him um, a few months back and I got him to sign it on the last day, like some sort of fanboy. Nice. Yeah. And he was absolutely lovely about it. Um, he, he mentions it in his book that he just thought that these people that he saw on, on TV were like this special breed of person, you know, and... Growing up in Grimsby, there wasn't really, you know, we had the auditorium, but that was more like classical stuff and comedians weren't really traveling to there at that point. And there wasn't, I didn't, we didn't have a comedy club per se. I'm, at, I'm doing another podcast, not to, you know, make you jealous, but I'm doing another podcast next week. And I said, what was your first live gig? And my first actual music live gig was was at university. And I mean, it was just like quite tragic that I had to wait until I was 18 years old to see Boney M live. Um, and then annoyingly, the streets played the week after. I was like, it could have been the other way around because I'm like, <laughs> the best person ever. Um, but yeah, so um, basically, uh, there was nothing really. Not, there wasn't nothing, but there was. There was. We weren't. It wasn't an embarrassment of riches. It was very much, you know, having to like dig out what you could see, and obviously, you know, like, um, you know, we weren't a very a wealthy family at all, like growing up. And um, but now, I think you know, 
particularly um there's a, there's a lot of stuff that's happening in, in Grimsby and I'm just speaking from personal experience there's a lot of stuff that's happening in Grimsby at the moment um with with like youth clubs and there's been a bit of investment in the area and it's people like myself Thomas Turgoose hopefully like Ella Henderson Kevin Clifton people that have, have have done well from Grimsby that are from working class backgrounds that can can pave the way for other people and go this is what you need to do and you know open their eyes to drama groups or other things in the area that might that might help them you know extracurricular after school stuff so it's but i think also as well it's i don't really think it's well represented in tv do you know what i mean and the, all the working class stuff that is represented in tv is usually kind of like tongue-in-cheek um there's so much middle class london stuff on tv is it, and some of it is most of it is absolutely brilliant but uh, there's not really that much working class stuff especially northern working class stuff do you know what i mean you'd, you'd have like shameless um which was you know so tongue-in-cheek it was unbelievable but was so brilliant nonetheless and um what was uh other oh, one with um oh my god i can't believe that brassic you know what i mean brassic at the moment again that's quite tongue-in-cheek i just don't think there's any you know the only real northern working class stuff that you get on tv are soap operas you know um but I, so I think there's, I think there needs to be an effort made by the, the broadcasters to have more working class sitcoms on TV, without a shadow of that. Would you agree with that? I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not helping you out there because the listener can't see me nodding along there. Because I mean, the person who, the person who leaps to mind, and, he, and it's Midlands, it's not, it's not even Northern, but someone like Shane Meadows, I think, is so wonderful yeah. because his his work is set in the in in a working class world without ever because he's from that world so you're never i'm not saying that brassic and other shows like that are doing this but he's never punching down at the working class no. he's telling the story from that point of view so, so you know yeah. one of, in my opinion one of the greatest films ever made and i mean this dead man's shoes i think is a oh yeah 10 out of 10 masterpiece and that and what he's doing there is he's just he's using he's used to use, using it as a lens rather than uh, demonstrably saying this is working class in in quote marks, yeah. and I and I and I, do, I totally agree with you. I think we, I mean, I I, I think it's like the golden age of Coronation Street did a very similar thing, and I think I, do, I feel like that even that even that has lost its way. Yeah, um, I think if I so I've come I came back to Grimsby before Boris changed the rules, and I self isolated before anyone tries to ring the police. <laughs> I'd done all my work from home, um, and then I come back. It was just me, my mum, and my sister. Um, but uh, my mum watches catch up. She watches like she she'll basically just have binged Coronation Street, Emmerdale, EastEnders, watch them, and EastEnders and Coronation Street are still working class. But as you say, they have lost their way a little bit. I think with with Coronation Street, there's it kind of like strides, it kind of straddles that kind of like almost Instagram reality, um, because because a lot of their characters in there now are like off screen, incredibly beautiful and have instagram accounts and you know they're aspirational whereas back in the day do you know i mean did anyone want to be like jack Douglas? it was like i don't want to you know emmerdale i think it's gone so middle class it's unbelievable oh, it's, i think I, I don't want to, i don't i can't afford the lawyers so i need to be careful how i say this coronation street feels to me that it's created by middle class people who are imagining what it must be like to be working class. Right, okay, yeah. Whereas back in the day, it did feel like... It was all working, working class. class. Yeah. I think that is what is yeah. 
I feel that is what is missing from a lot of television. Authentic working class voices telling authentic yeah. working class stories. Uh, Brassic, to be fair, d- does do a great job of that. Um, Absolutely. But the fact that the fact that you and I have managed to name one current well, show. I'd say, um, hey, you're right. Oh, one second. Uh, my mum's cleaners here. You're right. <laughs> yeah, we'll we go through. Um, I should have pointed out my mum has a guest house um, in, in Cleethorpes. So um, that's that. So, uh, nice. I, like, what's really good is at the moment, because it's not really open for business, Heather comes every now and then, but usually the doorbell would be going every, in pre-pandemic, would be going every five seconds. My one phone would be going off. It's an absolute nightmare. So it's actually been quite a nice little Christmas. Um, the, I think the, the last working-class sitcom that was just so pure and just was just... And it, it is literally what it was. It was a lens into a working class family. It was the royal family. Oh, it was absolutely. Just, and it, we, we related to that. So uh, as a family growing up, we, obviously the, the di- di- dynamics of it were slightly different, but that's exactly what we do. We just sit at my auntie's house and just watch TV nonstop and slag off people that were across the road. And and just it, that that the neighbours would come round and be really nice and then they'd go, oh, God, they ever said they're welcome, didn't they? I mean, whilst being, it was just, it was, it was exactly, it was a mirror. They nailed it. it, was it mirror. We'd watch it and then it was like, it was, it was a par- it was a parallel to exactly what was happening in our, in our living room and it was, it was just, so, it was so perfect and as well at the time, like I was obsessed with Oasis and then there was these like really cool actors writing really cool stuff in front of your screen and it was just like it was yeah. So I kind of you know with with anything I think I think well I, I personally think that you know there needs to be more working class stuff on 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 TV without a shadow of a doubt. And I think that is responsibility of um, the broadcasters to do that. And that's not me just saying thing saying that because I've got three things that are working class <laughs> based. It also is me saying that because I've got three working class sitcoms that are about to be pitched to broadcasters in the next six months. You know that are that have working class um, uh, kind of like uh, a backbone. But I just, you just don't you don't really see it anymore. And there's so many so much good stuff that is just based in London. And obviously, I live in London ordinarily, and I get used to it. You know, what I mean, I'll watch Fleabag. I'll be like, oh yeah, Motherland. I'll be like, oh yeah, thick of it. I'm like, oh yeah, Rev. Like, oh yeah. But then it's like going, you know, it's very not to um, sound like an um, a kind of Brexiteer, but it's very kind of like metropolitan liberal elite. Where it is like going, well, it's just very middle middle England, isn't it? It's very kind of Kensal Rise. Whereas if you were living in, say, you know, I'm from Leeds, you're from Grimsby, so take your pick. If you were living in those places, there are certain shows where you'd be you'd be watching that, thinking, I, I can't relate. To of course, any yeah. of this, of course, and like something like Fleabag did so well, did so so well, but so many people haven't seen it. That's the thing, like so many people haven't seen it. Like I come up north, and, you know, my mum, she's like, yeah. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on 
Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I think she watched like the first episode, so I couldn't get, really get my head around it. And I was like, okay, fair enough. And she, mum was a big connoisseur of comedy, like really becomes a connoisseur of comedy. But I, I guess it's just the way in which you're brought up and the tastes in which you acquire over the years. So, but um, oh yeah, I, I've said it for the third time now. Like, it, I think there is a responsibility, you know, as we've seen with a lot of sitcoms that have diversed and you've got a lot more BAME characters, BAME sitcoms. Still not enough, though. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, talked about earlier i used to absolutely i was obsessed with desmond's obsessed with desmond's and up until i think dame baptiste was saying that his was the only uh sunny d sunny yeah sunny d was the only is it black written black cast sitcom on bbc for since desmond's so you know there needs to be responsibility for, for for representing the whole of the uk um and not just um, northwest London. Uh, a friend of mine had a meeting. I'm being deliberately vague here, but a friend of mine had a, a meeting at a channel, and the cha- every person in the room from the channel was wagging the finger at this person that you and I both know, uh, telling them about the importance of diversity. And my friend said every single person in that room was a white middle class man. Yes. Yeah, but that's the problem. That is that therein lies the problem. And you know, it's. I think that there needs to be a reshuffle in in so many different departments. And um, I mean, I could, you know, it, so so that this diversity does happen, and it's not white middle class people that are making these decisions. But it is those people that make decisions because they've had the better opportunities in life to get into those positions. Yeah, you know. So, um, yeah. Ultimately, what I'm trying to say is, please, <laughs> if they are listening, take my three sitcoms that are being um, pitched to you in the next three months. Um, they're really good. <laughs> um, may I ask, when, when you're on tour, because I do know, you know, we, we both know people who, and I, I, I mean this quite literally, so, so people we know have gone on tour and and really struggled with oh, with, yeah. uh, with their mental health, you know. Yeah. What, what, what do you do on tour to... Uh, to you know to stay okay well if anything it's it's a bit different for me because i go on tour to stay okay because that's right. that's my that's my almost outlet i i i just live uh um being being a being a div on stage so this has been the, the biggest struggle for me like the last six months of not being able to kind of get out there and we had that little perineum bit in between the two lockdowns where you were able to get out and do stuff and that that was great and i'm really lucky in that in a few weeks time i'm going out to touchwood um to dubai to support jack whitehall and do three nights out there so that's going to be a little bit of a, a drug that i can pop back in the veins but i am um, 
I kind of go on tour to, to keep myself sane, really. It's always been my outlet. As we talked about earlier, I was always like the div at school. I was always like the idiot at university. It would just pull my pants down, not full on nudity, but, you know, just, just to just to make people laugh. I would do anything to make people laugh. And as the years went on, and I realised that comedy was an outlet that basically channeled all that ridiculousness into me being funny for anything for, you know, for 10 minutes to 90 minutes on, on stage. I was like, oh, that's, that's great. And I've become less of a div with my mates now. Like, we'll go out and I'm not the funniest person in the group anymore. And that's absolutely fine. And I'm fine with that because it just means I'm probably not going to get kicked out of a pub. Um, so I, I, I kind of live for being on tour, really. And it does get lonely sometimes because you, you, you've been on your own. But as long as you sort out your logistics and go, well, as long as I can come back or I can see my mum or I can go and see like my mate Martin or I can go you know, down to the southwest and see my old choir friends in the cathedral and stuff. And, you know, that's been, that's been the thing. So I... It's kind of the, the touring looks after me, really. Now, you saw my reaction there. I can relate to that so much. Before I got into comedy, the the pressure I would put myself under to be the funniest I could be on oh. a night out. I'm going back to my 20s now. To the extent where I'd get <laughs> home and I'd analyse my, my performance that night with my... I mean, it's pathetic. It's and then I got pathetic. into comedy, found my outlet, and then on nights out, you know... Very sensible, probably the first one to go home these days. Yeah. Um, yeah. I still, I still have moments and stuff, but you know, like I just, I just feel that I don't need to prove myself anymore. They've seen me do my tour show at So Theatre. They've seen me support Jack at the O2 and, at, you know, smash both of those gigs. So I'm almost like, I don't need to prove myself to anyone. And I guess that's what I was doing before was the insecurity of being like, I am the funniest person. Please love me. You know, like, like, look how naturally funny I am. And now I'm like, well, I don't need to do that. You've seen, you've seen that I am, you know, um, but and I, I'm really, I'm in a really fortunate position. I've got like the loveliest circle of friends um, possible. Like the little network we've got um, 10 girls, 10 boys of just, just so much support, always come and see you. And we always support each other in all of our businesses. So I'm really lucky in that I, you know, just found those friends at the right time. Um, and then I've got nice little pockets of friends, you know, school friends, uh, other uni friends, comedy friends, singing choir friends and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, just been quite lucky in that respect. You, now you've got this, you, you have this, na- and I, I know uh, I've, I've said this already about being naturally funny, but you've got this, the, you've got this lightning in a bottle charisma and energy, this you know, John Belushi. You know, that's the highest compliment you can you can give a comedian. Belushi. I'm not. I'm not saying that you 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 do what Belushi was doing, but but Belushi's struggle was once Saturday Night Live had finished, his struggle was what to do with himself. Have you have you ever had that sort of thing when you're home from a gig or on tour? Have you had that struggle in terms of coping with? not being on stage no no I haven't and I've been quite lucky in that I get my fix and I'm kind of like done I remember before I'd started doing comedy um Colin Murray had a show on Radio 1 and he interviewed Russell Brand and again like in the early stages of Russell Brand's uh, career and he was almost like he was talking about chasing the high and and I was fascinated by it and he said that he'd finished you know and obviously I think it's fair to say that Russell Brand has quite an addictive um personality and that he got addicted to quite a lot of things early on. 
and he would say that he'd finish his um, gig and then after his gig would then go and do drugs to chase the high or try and have sex to get the orgasm to chase the high. And I've never really, luckily, been in that in that position. I've kind of just finished the gig and, you know, w- would like to go out for drinks and stuff. And, you know, when I was on tour with Rob Beckett, early doors, we'd go out and have quite a few big nights and same with, with Jack. But ultimately now I'm quite happy to just get in the Volvo and just listen to like a podcast or radio free or, or, or whatever. I did have, a, I did have, a, there was a, a period in my life where I went off the rails a little bit. I was just a little bit all over the shop. Um, and it was, I'd say it was about six months to a year where I was just drinking a, an awful lot. I was dating quite a lot of girls and Rob Beckett used to call me John Belushi, not for comical reasons, literally for just being a little bit out of control. And I was, and I, you know, I got help and saw a therapist about certain things that was going on in my life or why I was doing it, and that kind of helps. But yeah, it's not the first time I've been likened to John Belushi, and not in a positive light, in a kind of, not speedball, I wasn't doing speedball, uh, you know, but just like boozing and just being a bit of a bit of a, bit of a dick. But it was, you know, there were certain people like, oh, Lloyd, that, I mean, that's not you, is it? And you go, oh, no, it, it really isn't. And then went and, you know, sought, sought a therapist, seeked, found a therapist, found one and she was great and kind of like just made me realize why I was doing what I was doing and what I needed to do in order to stop that and I encourage any um I can hear my mum and cleaner talking quite loudly in the kitchen I mean can I I can't really ask him to be quiet can you hear it I can't hear it at all good okay well then I've just made um I think she's talking loud if she's wearing a mask um (laughs) anyway it's just that we can still hear you Anyway, um, but I'm with you. I totally agree. I, I, you know, I, I've been in therapy since my mid twenties. I would credit well, it's not, it. It's not a competition, mate. But well done. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm such a huge advocate of it. Um, so, so, so how, how did you find it? Oh, amazing! But what I was really, and it was a few people that had said, "Oh, have you thought about talking to someone?" And it, I guess it's that stigma, especially being a working class northern lad where again that's not something that you do and what's been really good is I've got a lot of friends and family close to me who over the last year have opened up about also going to therapy and admitting it and it's just it's so nice to know that it, it's fine I mean it's fine to open up about it um I kind of thought that when I'd go to a therapist that they just give you all the answers straight away and then you'd be like, yes, on. that's so true. I was, I was like, so, uh, so this Come is on, man, hit me with it. You know? uh, yeah, yeah. So basically um, I was promised head boy uh, and then didn't get it. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a girl called Lauren at school that basically said she loved me and, but like never did. And then like, and there, and, and there, and there's, like, there's so many other things. I was like, so what do you think it is then? And they're like, well, I, I, we can't give you the answers. Like we have to work over, over like two months. Go, two, I've got two months. And then after like two or three weeks, you realize, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And then what it does do is basically they give you the right things to think about and the right questions to think about. And they don't give you homework, but they're like, look, maybe think about this. And then, you know, you do spend that week, then almost kind of like piecing together certain things so that when you come back the week later and speak to them, you have a better understanding of why you felt like that and, and what have you. So um, I wholeheartedly recommend anyone that might be struggling or feel lost, you know, to speak to therapists. There's a number of um, uh places to go some more expensive than others and it just depends where you are in your kind of like your, your wallet bracket but i went to a place um, this isn't an ad or i went to a place called the metanoia institute which was recommended by another comedian a friend of ours who we both know 
And she said, look, this place is a training institute. And um, so you, you don't have to pay as much. So I think at the time I, I, I was, I started doing comedy, but by no means was I any, like wealthy or had to spare money, but it was 25 pound a session and it was, it was great. And it, it really helped me. It really, really helped me. So um, they were based in Ealing, but again, there's a number of places that you can, that you can go to. And I was thinking it's, you know, it, it's just, again, just something that w- we need to talk about more, not, you know, ram it down people's throats, but just let people know that, you know, a lot of people go to therapy. Even now, I think footballers have sports psychologists. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's almost under this veil of, oh, it's a sports psychologist. It makes you better. It makes you, like, number one. But ultimately, those sports psychologists are therapists that will be talking to them about things that have happened in their life, why they can't react to certain things, why they have the issues they have. And it's great. And, uh, you know, it's, footballers do come out and talk about mental health, and I think that's really, really a uh, positive thing for them, for them to do. And I think the more people that think that, oh, it's okay to speak to someone, it isn't um, a weakness, the better. Because then, you know, it's the aid old analogy. If you break your leg, you get it seen to. If there's something wrong with your head, you don't. Um, so, yeah. And I, I, you know, I haven't really spoken about this to, to many people. I, I've suffered with real, I've never had anxiety in my life, but in between, just after, as the second lockdown was coming in, just before my birthday, I had like an unbelievable bout of anxiety that I'd never experienced before. It was awful. Absolutely awful. And um, I spoke to my girlfriend, who was brilliant in helping with that. Um, I spoke to friends who, and like one of my best mates admitted to me three weeks ago that he's had anxiety for 12 years and never told me. I speak to him every week. Like I've, I was best man at his wedding. I've just outed him as to who it was. But, you know, it was that thing. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, I have anxiety. I mean, I, you know, and I was like, why don't you tell me that, mate? We've been friends since 2002. Like, it's 18, however many years it is. You know, 18 years. And it was just, yeah, so it's just uh, admitting it. I, yeah, I had a real bad bout of anxiety and then kind of looked at ways of, like, trying to figure it out. I didn't speak to anyone this time around. Um, but I just found other coping mechanisms and that was writing lists every day to make sure that I just had like stuff for, for the next day, which I've always been quite good at anyway and exercising. In November I ran 89 kilometers. Wow. uh, And like this, you know, I'm back in when I came out to Grimsby, I've been trying to do 5k a day. So it's, um, it, it, all these things help. Do you mean they all, they, they do do really help. And obviously there's no one thing works for everyone. So it's just trying to find out what, what works for you. So um, I just be open about it. I mean, I podcast with Robbie Knox and I talk about, you know, taking CBD oil in the first lockdown um, just to take the edge off, which I think is also what cocaine users is saying. So um, probably not the best. Uh, <laughs> I just had a bump, just takes the edge off. Now. <laughs> um, so, um, but at night, I'd have CBD. Me and Thomas Turgis to talk about taking um, the CBD oil that we got from Anthony Fowler, the boxer. It's a very weird story. But uh, yeah, so I, I, Anthony Fowler, the boxer, um, is my CBD dealer. So, um, and it's legal. Like, it's not, it's not him. Like, I'm not meeting him by, he just posts it, which is absolutely fine. Um, but I've stopped taking that. I started taking St. Andrew's Wart, if, you, if you're asking, which is a mood lifter. Although I haven't had it for two days and experimented at time. Almost me ranting is showing that I don't seem well, do I? So I'm just going to let you go back to the questions, James. Jesus. Well, I think you, uh, <coughs> I think you seem in fine fetaloid. You, you look well, and uh, I think you, you seem in a good place. I mean, I think you know everything's going great. Given there, is, you know, given there is the old panny D raging on this year, you've got a tour to look forward to. 
feels like you're more in demand than ever. You'll you'll always have those funny bones. Um, yeah, Matt, I think everything's coming up, Lloyd. In uh, also as well, as, just to, to say, like you, you've touched on the, the naturally funniness, but then in, in a podcast like this, you know, I'm just I'm just a man talking. It's only really when I get on stage those funny bones happen. You know, it's it's I do switch off quite a lot. I mean, if this was Graham Norton, I'd probably be a bit more energetic. I mean, get out I of here! But it is, yeah, it does. It it switches on kind of like when I start going towards the stage, and I'm not literally in my Grimsby Town shorts um, and a docked hoodie in my mum's dining room. Uh, now, speaking of Grimsby, I know you've got to. You're. I'm quite jealous that you're you're able to get to the the football today. So I, I know it's not Grimsby. I'm going to Cleethorpe's Town. Oh, you really? Yeah, so it's just down the road. So it's weirdly Cleethorpe's playing Grimsby and Grimsby playing Cleethorpe's. Um, so oh, actually, it's... are they? Oh, I'm not sure if they are. Cleethorpe's might actually play Cleethorpe's now. Okay. Anyway, that's by the by. Um, they're they're playing a team in, called Immingham, who are also in Lincolnshire. So Lincolnshire is in tier three. So in theory, you're allowed to. Well, not in theory, legally, you're allowed to go to football. So it's, it, they've got. Uh, I think it's 150 tickets they've sold. And the stadium can hold eighteen hundred. So I mean, it's it's not going to be full by any stretch of the imagination. It's going to be nice, but, though, isn't it? It's going to be really lovely. Again, mentally, it's just going to be nice to be able to get out there and and be out in the open and watch something. And obviously, I'm and I'm very in a fortunate position to be able to do that because um, I've got to go back to London next week for to, to basically live, um, and I will be obviously not be able to leave the house at all. Um, apart from then, obviously, when I go to Dubai, so I'll just stop talking. But yeah, so I'm going to um, I'm going to Cleethorpe's Town versus Immingham today. Are you not? He's ta- staying up there. Not an option. Then you have to come back to London. Well, the, 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 I have I have to come back to London because I've got to fly from Heathrow to go to Dubai. Um, so I came back to like kind of have Christmas with my mum and I self isolated before, and I've just been in here. So like next week, I'm going back to to London to then essentially self-isolate for a week um, before I've, I'm having a test on the Friday and then fly out on the Monday. So I, I kind of, I'm, I'm going back to London just to basically stay in my flat and and, know that. and I've got a few bits of work next week, which I supposedly to, uh, in real, in real life, but I've asked if I can have, can do them on zoom because I don't want to leave in the house. I've been real like, paranoid nearly about this whole thing and like my friends and family will um vouch for this i've been a dick when it comes to the rules i've been an absolute stickler for them it's ridiculous yeah good for you I t- I t- there's one thing that we both did that was lovely between the lockdowns was that um i thought what jonathan ross did was such a lovely thing that jonathan ross's comedy oh, club. The comedy club yeah but to you know to have comedians back on stage in front of an audience uh, I thought that was a really selfless thing that he did there. And that was, yeah. I think that meant, the chat I hear on the circuit, that meant a great deal to a lot of comedians. Yeah, And I include those who weren't on the show. I know that people who hadn't done it saw what was happening and were like so full of respect yeah. for what happened there. I think, you know, I think Jonathan made it happen himself. He's got his own production company. He was like, do you know what, let's do this. And, um, it, it, you know, it was it was just great to be a part of it. Both mentally thinking, Oh, I'm working. I'm actually working, Absolutely. and then mentally thinking, oh, I'm still good enough to be on TV. Um, but what was then the hardest thing is like do, your first gig back is a first gig act on a stage is on TV, <laughs> and Jonathan Ross is just sat there, and you go, <laughs> yes! okay. 
And like usually if you're doing TV stuff, you'll you'll prep two or three days in advance. You know, you'll do gigs, you'll double or triple around London. Whereas this, you're like going, okay, cool. Well, I'll just I'll just get on stage and do a TV gig in front of uh, uh in front of um in in jobs that leave it in twenty minutes. Is that all right? Half an hour. Um. So uh, um. So I was just on. Absolutely does not look ready to go out in 20 minutes. Half an hour. It'd be an absolute. I don't. Or her hair was still wet, so that takes ages. In 20 minutes, and she's like. And then. Um, but I mean, there was, yeah. there was some comedians we know who they'd not done a gig since February. That was the their first gig back. Yeah. Was an ITV one Saturday night show. Yeah, and I, I was, I was, I was again like for 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 mental health was was getting out there and doing gigs all the time to kind of, you know, keep, keep myself online, you know, busy. So that kind of like helps a little bit. Um, and then, yeah, bang, you know what I mean? ITV one Saturday night. It's like, ah, but it was great. And what was really good as well, was like, like not to get into the nitty gritty of it, but like it was, it, it, you know, I, I, th- I think it probably cost Jonathan more than it, you know, I think, you know, he, he, yeah. he, 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 not footed it, but you know, fronted it and said, "Look, you know, let's just get it done and stuff." So, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was great to do. And I was like, I was really lucky. I did Richard Osman's House of Games, Lisa Tarbuck's Comedy Game Show, a few other little things as well. So, it was good to mentally know, oh, I'm getting work, but also I'm still good enough, even though I haven't worked for four months, that I can still still do it. So, yeah, good for Not you. Bad. Now, before you go, last last question, the one that I often forget to ask is. Uh, and I, I mean, I guess we've touched on it already, but um, could you share with us what you do for balance, Lloyd? Yeah, well, up until um, the pandemic kind of uh, hit, I'd, I, my life was quite well balanced in that I'd have my comedy and I'd have my, my friend time, I'd have like my work time, but then crucially also I have my singing time as well. So like, I sing in, um, in, in choirs, and it used to be a thing that I did. Well, I still do it professionally, but it used to be my full-time job. I used to be a professional choir boy and choral singer, lay vicar, lay clerk, sing at churches, and that would be my almost kind of other outlet as well. I would loved. I loved doing comedy, but then the singing thing was 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 one thing as well, and it just transports me to a different place. Like it sounds so ridiculous and so um, dickish, but I would literally be in a choir, wearing my dress, singing. 15th, 16th century Latin polyphony or a nice bit of, you know, a Stanford canticle. And I'd just be transported. And that was, I just needed that in my life. So that is one thing that I, that is that for balance. That's, that's something that obviously it's not for everyone. I'm not saying, Hey guys, go out and sing with St. George's Chapel, Windsor Castle. But that's just what I yeah. had and that's what I I, I I did really and like again throughout this whole second lockdown like looking at the things that I haven't been able to do that's been one thing that's that's missing that I cannot wait to get back and um and do really so that's that's my thing that really does and a lot of people go oh, would you rather sing for the rest of your life or rather be a comedy comedian for the rest of your life and it's like I don't really want to answer that because I can't I can't imagine life without either um, I was say, how lucky that you can do both it's wonderful well yeah absolutely like and again like you know i worked my tits off 
to get to where I was singing wise, you know, to, to, to be able to sing with the choirs that I sing in and to be able to sing at the level I do. Yeah. I think to not have that for the last year has been a real kind of like, you know, I've been ch- chomping at a bit and a bit anxious about it all. So I'm really looking forward to getting back and, and doing that. And I'm hoping that it, it kind of comes back relatively soon. Uh, Lloyd, lovely to see you as always. Huge thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. God sorry bless you, sir. Lots of love. Sorry for the guest house interruptions. Mate, it, it made it an even better episode. Okay. All right. And to the um, um, broadcasters listening, just get involved in those working class sitcoms that I'm going to send you away in the next few months, okay? <laughs> the word is out there, into the universe. I love it. Uh, Lloydie, take care, man. Cheers, mate. See you later on. Lots of love. God bless. Uh, huge thanks to Lloyd. Also, the, the pedant in me wants to flag, as I was editing that episode, it sounds like Lloyd and I think that the only role Rowan Atkinson has ever played... I mean, it doesn't... It might sound like it. The only role he's ever played is Mr Bean. Obviously, we know that is not the case. Uh, what Lloyd means is... I, I'm, I'm really mansplaining here, but, you know, it was when I was editing it, I thought, oh, I could see why someone might think this. What Lloyd meant was he'd only ever seen Rowan Atkinson appear as Mr. Bean when doing uh, talk shows or appearing on, like he describes, the cookery segment. He'd never seen Rowan Atkinson as Rowan Atkinson. He'd only ever seen him come on to shows as Mr. Bean. Obviously, he's not going to go on a chat show as Blackadder. I mean, you know, he might do. I'm sure he'd pull it off. Uh, I just wanted to explain, as I say, the as I was listening back, I thought I probably should put an explanation in. Uh, so this is me mansplaining. It's not how you should start 2021, is it? Mansplaining. Sweet Jesus. Uh, anyway, lovely to be back. Huge thanks to all of you. As ever, spread the word. Tell your friends. Uh, we are at Balance LDN. Uh, and we are back next Monday with a, a very veganuary themed episode. But I'll say no more than that. Uh, anyway, lovely to be back. Take care. Thank you as always. And uh, I'll see you real soon. I've been James Gill. Bye, 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 bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 